name is Rudy. We are in John 14, verses 1 through 6. We're working through a series called uh, I Am, the I Am Statements of Jesus. I love the I Am Statements of Jesus because it really does help us to understand we don't have to guess who Jesus is. He tells us who he is. I'm very appreciative of that in relation to Jesus. But when it comes to understanding who Jesus is, as we come to take him more and more seriously, as we come to follow after him, who he is starts to shape how we live and, and who we are ourselves are. And, and this I am statement uh, actually speaks directly to us in that way this evening. This I am statement may be like the most familiar, most well-known one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we're gonna get there. Uh, but before we get there, we're gonna build to it. And, and as we get on, on, on our way there, I wonder if you uh, have ever been around someone or if you ever like know someone who's like the person that has all the right answers all of the time. You ever been around that person? You know that person that's like, I know there's some people just like be laughing over here. That's good. Like, like that person that's like, I've got the right answer all the time. All, and if you don't know that person, by the way, it's you. You're that person for the people that are around you. No, I'm, I'm playing with you. Um, when I was younger, I really wanted to be that person with like all of the answers. You know what I mean? Like I really, I started reading from when I was a super, like from when I was like five years old, just voraciously began reading. And I just wanted to like be the guy that knew as much or knew as much as I possibly could and had all of these answers. And, and to be clear, before I, I continue on, I just want to say like answers are good. There seems to be this weird cultural virtue around ambiguity, like that this has become like something that's better to actually have, maybe out of like a fear of being perceived as offensive or something, whatever. But like clarity is kindness and answers are good. It's just not all that we should want to have. When you look at the life of Jesus, it's really clear that when he was asked questions, Jesus gave answers. In fact, the I am statement that we're looking at tonight comes as a response to a question Jesus has asked. Jesus has answers, answers are good, but Jesus also has questions. He's got really good questions that he asks. If you look at the life of Jesus over and over and over and over again, he's such a skilled question asker. He asks these questions that draw out the people that he's talking to. So he's not just talking to them simply face to face, but heart to heart and mind to, to mind. I wanna have good, clear and helpful answers, but I also wanna have good, clear and helpful questions. So I'm gonna give you guys a cheat code that I've learned over the last 10 years. Note takers, this is for you. This is a question that has been wildly helpful in my life, in my relationships, in ministry, in whatever uh, for the last 10 years of my life. It's a simple one, but when answered honestly and, and clearly and open-heartedly, it is one of the best. Are you ready? It's three words. How are you? How are you? <laughs> Jared, I love you, dude. That's great. Jared, I could say like Jesus is Lord and be like, amen, right? It's so good. I just appreciate this man so much. Y'all can talk back to me, by the way, too. We don't have to pretend like we're like in like a moratorium right now. This is not a funeral. It's a celebration, okay? Like you can talk back. We're gonna be fine. We're gonna make it, all right? So uh, I, I love this question. How are you? Saul Company, how are you? Five, five well, maybe. <laughs> Genuinely, five weeks into the semester, like, don't have to answer out loud, but slow down and consider for a second, like, how are you? What's going good right now? What's going hard? Where do you feel a sense of drive? Where do you feel apathy? Where do you feel alive? Where do you feel a little bit numb? Maybe afraid, maybe sad. How, like, how are you? 
Something I really love about Jesus is that he so deeply cares about how his disciples, how his followers are doing. He cares about the answer to that question, how are you? We saw it last week as Jared taught about Jesus as the good shepherd. And we actually see it again here. The first five verses of this chapter show us how the disciples that Jesus is speaking to are actually doing. There's three things that are going on inside of the disciples before we even get to the I am statement that puts a little more weight on the present reality of this I am statement that Jesus gives to them. Three things that they're experiencing, and I'm willing to bet three things that maybe you are experiencing, have experienced, or likely will experience as well. So Jesus speaks right to them and right to us, and it culminates in him telling us exactly who he is for us and to us. So let's hop into the scene. If the word doesn't do the work, the work won't get done. John 14, verse 1, just the first six words of Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. How are the disciples doing? You can write this down. They got troubled hearts. You enter in on the disciples at this moment in the text, you enter in on men who have troubled hearts, disquieted hearts, anxious hearts, distracted hearts. And honestly, it kind of makes sense if you consider what happened just before this. In John chapter 13, Jesus has shared a meal with his disciples in a really weird, countercultural, odd, uh, disorienting moment. Jesus has gotten down on his hands and knees and has washed the feet of the disciples. And then he gets up and starts talking to them as if he's going to be leaving. And then he says, one of you is going to betray me, kind of indicates that it's going to be Judas. And then he gives them a new commandment and says, hey, I've got to go somewhere. And where I'm going, you can't go with me. What? We've been with you for the last several years. Where, where are you going that we can't go with you now? That doesn't make any sense. And then Peter, because of course, Peter, I love Peter. Peter rolls up and he says, wherever you go, I'm going to go with you. And Jesus looks at him and says, actually, you're going to deny me. Troubled hearts, okay? Like that's a little bit of an odd situation to be walking to. It's, it's a disorienting gang of events that have occurred. They've got troubled hearts. And so Jesus speaks to them and says, let not your hearts be troubled. If you actually take that phrase and you put it into the positive in its translation, it's to hear Jesus say to his disciples, to his followers, to the people in front of him, to hear Jesus say, hey, let your hearts be at ease. He cares about how they're doing. He cares about Salt Company, how we're doing. So how are you? Anyone in here walk in with a troubled heart? You feel a little disoriented, a little disquieted, a little anxious, a little worried, afraid, a little troubled. Jesus is not unaware of how you're doing. I, I, there's no need to like stuff that down and pretend like we don't actually have human experiences when we come into spaces and rooms like this or when we talk about or we talk with Jesus and pretend like we're fine and like everything's okay when in reality we actually may walk in with a troubled heart. The good news is that if Jesus says let your heart be at ease, it means he actually has a means by which your heart can be put at ease. It's where he's going, but before he does, He'll unearth another present experience of the disciples. Keep reading John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. And then he says, believe in God, believe also in me. So how are they doing? They've got troubled hearts and they have a weary faith. 
He's encouraging them, reminding them, leading them to God and to himself. Again, we've hit this actually every week so far in the series, and we'll hit it again. Each of these I am statements in some way is Jesus claiming to be God. If anyone ever hits you with the Jesus never said that he was God, like shtick or whatever, you can just bring them back to each of these statements where Jesus is saying through and through, over and over, clearer and clearer that Jesus is God. He didn't just do it sometimes, he did it rather often in a culturally contextualized way to the people in the near Middle East first century space that he's in. He's saying to believe in God, believe also in me, believe in us both, put your faith in both of us because the two of us are one. He's addressing their faith, their belief, because their faith is weary. At the beginning, following Jesus was kind of awesome. A lot of crowds, a lot of new stuff, a lot of healings, a lot of miracles. This is all incredible. We're kind of recognized every time that we walk into different places. People are starting to know who Jesus is. They're starting to know who we are too. This is kind of nice. Like we're rocking into somewhere and they're like starting to look at us. People are trying to, starting to defer to us. And then it starts to get difficult. There's this impending sense of a turn coming at this point in the disciples following of Jesus. Things aren't as easy as they once were. Jesus is saying things that aren't as easy to understand or, or feel a little bit harder to swallow. They're getting pushed out of those easy earlier days and you start to feel more aware of the opposition that's around you. Their faces grow sharper in the crowds as you come into the city. Jesus is talking about people betraying him and denying him and walking away from him sad. Following him isn't as easy as it was at first. They have a weary faith. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. Like you've lived some life now, maybe you've followed Jesus for a little bit and you just had moments when you're like, yeah, my faith feels a little bit weary. Yeah, I feel a little bit tired. Or Jesus cares about that in his disciples. So he speaks in a way to strengthen their weary faith because when you're tired, when you're weary, it reveals this longing for rest, for peace, for calm, for relief, for, I'll use this word, for home. So Jesus continues, verse two, in my father's house, there's many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may also be with me and you will know the way to where I am going. Jesus takes their gaze, he takes their eyes, he takes their attention. And instead of looking directly around them or even directly in front of them, he lifts their eyes up to look ahead and into the future. He speaks about a home that is being prepared for father followers of Jesus in the place where his father dwells. If you were to dig into the culture of this time, you would find this word home means abiding place, but it would have also referred to a housing complex where the entirety of the family lived. The only way that you had a room in this house is if you were a member of the family. Jesus is saying, you will find home, belonging, and family with my father because I'm going to prepare a place for you. In the, in, the, in the minds of these Jewish men who are hearing this text, they would have thought a place where God is, okay, there's, there's two places I know where God has been. He's been in the garden and he's been in the temple. Okay, the, the garden was where he first walked with, with Adam and Eve and the temple is where we would go to, to worship him. So we went to the, you, you think about the garden, they were in the garden, they, um, Adam and Eve sinned, they're expe- expelled from the garden, they're not allowed to come back in and there's an angel, crazy moment in Genesis 3, is skipped in VeggieTales right? Uh, There's a moment where the angel rolls up and has a fiery sword 
No one can get into the, you can't get back in. Why? Because of your, your sin. And then the temple, you can't just walk into the Holy of Holies to be with the Lord. There has to be a sacrifice that is made for you. When Jesus is saying that he will prepare a place for you, they hear that and think, oh, you're gonna be the one who takes the blade of the angel who suffers in my place, who dies for what is wrong inside of me so that I can actually go into the garden again. You're gonna be the sacrifice for me so that I can actually, go into the temple. When he's saying you're going to be able to make your home with God, they understand Jesus is saying something has to happen so that you can actually be my way in. It's incredible what's happening here. It's this longing for home that they have and Jesus saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. C.S. Lewis, prolific Christian author, writes in Mere Christianity that if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The weariness of faith in this present place reveals that there is another place, another home that you and I were made for. Jesus gives himself as a promise of future hope for those with weary faith, them and us. It's pretty incredible. Jesus is saying, I'm going to make a way for you to be home forever, to be with the Father forever. And then Thomas speaks, <laughs> as he should. Because he asks the question that anybody would have asked after hearing these words from Jesus. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Here we see our third reality the disciples are experiencing. They've got troubled hearts, they've got weary faith, and here Thomas gives us a third answer for how they're doing. They have desperate questions. They've got desperate questions. I, just as an aside, I love Thomas for like a number of reasons. First, if you were to write the Bible, Thomas never would have made the cut, which is why like, like you would have never put him in there because of like all these moments that he has. And really there's, there's only two. It's kind of this one where he's asking a desperate question and a moment later in, in his life. But I love Thomas because our humanity is revealed in the person of Thomas. This is one of the 12 disciples rolled deep with Jesus for years and he's still asking desperate questions. It is wild for us to think that we can't bring our rawest, most desperate parts of ourselves to God because for some reason we think we have to come to him cleaned up already. Thomas certainly didn't think that. We may also know Thomas from a moment later in his life when he doubts the resurrection. If you've ever heard of a doubting Thomas, that's actually speaking to this man in, in this moment. Um, just as an aside, I think that's crazy. Like, could you imagine being known for the worst moment of your life forever? <laughs> like no one here calls me lying Rudy, okay? Angry Rudy. Porn addict Rudy. Drunk Rudy. That's wild. We, we call him by a sin, but what's interesting, if you look at that story, that's not how Jesus sees him at the end. Thomas sees and believes in Jesus, and Jesus just calls Thomas, Thomas. Further, Thomas wasn't always like this. Just a few chapters earlier in John chapter 11, this really isn't honed on that much, but he looks at the other disciples and says, let's go die with Jesus. Like this dude was passionate. Like he was like actually passionate. He's got this one rough moment and he's dictated like this forever. It's wild. Thomas just has a troubled heart. He's just got a weary faith. And so we see this desperate questions, just like the other disciples, just like us. 
And I've found that if we stuff our desperate questions down, they tend to stew. We become more troubled and our faith actually becomes more weary. But when we bring our desperate questions to Jesus, when we come to him and we listen to him, those desperate questions as we listen to his answer can lead to our deepest growth. Do you know how incredible it is that he asked this honest, desperate question of Jesus? Like the words that come next, the I am statement that you've likely possibly heard before is an answer to this desperate question. Here's what's incredible. Thomas is looking for a path, but Jesus leads him to what he really needs, which is a person. Jesus leads Thomas, he leads the disciples, he leads anyone here with a troubled heart, a weary faith, or a desperate question, any who will listen, actually listen to Jesus, he leads them to himself. John chapter 14, verse six. And Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To the troubled hearts, to those with weary faith, to those with desperate questions, to everyone, everywhere at all times. This is where Jesus brings us. It's the best place he could possibly bring us. He brings us to himself. Jesus, who is the only way true revelation of God and the everlasting life. We're just going to take these three at a time. I might make one more comment at the end and then I'm going to take my seat and we'll worship in light of these realities. First, Jesus is the only way. He says, I am the way. He's just answering Thomas's question. Hey, how can we know the way to the father? Jesus answers so clearly, I am the way. How do I get home? I am the way. How do I get to heaven? I am the way. How do I get to the Father? Jesus says, I am the way. Jesus answers his question clearly. You come to the Father through me. A few things on this. First, I think this reveals the heart of God in a way that's really compelling and is also incredibly confronting. There's, I've been in so many conversations over the last 10 years that have gone something like this. If I start to talk about Jesus or the gospel or God, or the response that I get is, I do believe that there is a God, but I just think that we can't really know him. I, I do believe that there is a God, but I don't think that he's knowable. I don't think that we can know him. I just want to just, just a quick observation. What a bad God that would be. Genuinely. Like, how are you powerful enough to be like considered God but somehow too weak or too obscuring of yourself or whatever to not be knowable. That actually doesn't make any sense. You're powerful enough to be the one that makes or creates or does whatever. You're that powerful, but you're not powerful enough to make yourself known or, or knowable. Like that, that actually doesn't make any sense. Jesus actually makes it very clear to them and to us tonight that God isn't hiding from anyone. He actually wants you to know him, to come to him. This is the story of the Bible. The Old Testament points towards a Messiah that will make a way for all people to come to himself. And in the New Testament, we meet that Messiah, that Savior, who is Jesus Christ. God wants us to be with him, so he sends Jesus. Our sin separates us from God, so he sends a Savior to die and rise again in our place for our sins so that he might be our way. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Which brings me to my second thought on this, which is the exclusivity of this claim. It's unavoidable. Jesus makes an incredibly exclusive claim by saying that he is the way, the only way to the Father. And then he backs it up by saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is incredibly kind of Jesus to give this amount of clarity. And again, if you read this in the positive, here's what Jesus is saying. 
anyone can come to the Father through me. Not some can come to the Father through me. Not a particular type of person can come to the Father through me. Not this ethnicity alone can come to the Father through me. Not this cleaned up and well-behaved type of person can come to the Father through me. He says, anyone can come to the Father through me. Through me. Not through your family that might believe. Not through works that you need to do. Not through rituals you need to perform or accomplish. Not by accident. But anyone can come to the Father through Jesus. None can come to the Father except through him. He is the only way. So the words that Jesus is saying. And the impact of that at least hits us in two ways. It moves us and it assures us. First, it moves us. When you understand that anyone can come to the Father through Jesus, you actually start to orient your life towards helping people come to know and follow Jesus. You start to understand that the gospel Christian that came to you came to you on its way to somebody else. You actually can't help but carry the good news of the gospel to people who don't have it. For some of you, you'll grip this or perhaps it will grip you and you'll choose to take steps towards spending a summer overseas or you'll graduate and look for a place that uh, a church is being started, maybe in our network, maybe not. Who cares? Like just go find a place where people don't know Jesus and leverage your life to help them come to know and follow Jesus who is the only way, the only truth and the only life but maybe going across the sea for a summer or going across state lines when you graduate starts by actually moving across your hallway today and starting to pray and move towards opportunities and openings to share the gospel with those who are around you right now this reality moves us but it also assures us see if you have a problem with Jesus being the only way I just want you to understand you don't have a problem with me you don't have a problem with the church you have a problem with Jesus. If Jesus is not the only way, then the cross of Jesus Christ is futile. It makes no sense for him to have died. If he's not the only way, the resurrection means nothing and his death is meaningless. But if he is the only way, if you come to understand this incomprehensible beauty that God the Father has made a way for us to come and be with him, there is actually an assurance there that can bring ease to the most troubled heart. That assurance that comes with Jesus being the only way to the Father by trusting in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection for your salvation is this. That if everything in your life goes tail up, if everything falls apart, if everything crumbles, if every dream and aspiration and goal you have is never met, here's the worst thing that will happen to you. You will have eternity with Jesus in the dwelling place of God and be with the Father forever. That is the worst thing that will happen. That is it. Nothing good else happens. That's the worst thing that comes at the end of your life. Because of what Christ has done, the very worst thing is that you have everlasting life with God. This will put the most troubled heart at ease. At least a little, right? Like, if it all falls apart, I have Jesus. If it all falls apart, I'm with him forever. I think I can finally share this. I am... I've been living in this reality for the last several weeks. Some of you already know this. Um, and some of you actually picked up on it at kickoff uh, when I said that it had been the most brutal three weeks of my and my wife Molly's lives. Um, that's because on August 21st, our lives did go tail up this year and crumbled. And everything for us fell apart as a midwife looked at my eight-month pregnant wife and said, your baby doesn't have a heartbeat anymore.
In that moment, we became the parents of a stillborn daughter, Ainsley Evangeline Hartman. Uh, we were, and we are, to be honest with you, so sad, still in grief, still very raw, still in shock in some ways, still, bro- still experiencing that. And while we are so grateful for so much that has been given by the people around us, it has been the assurance that through Jesus, we will come to the Father, that we will one day be home with him that has held us down in the last six weeks. I would argue it has kept us sane that in the midst of this most significant trouble, disquiet strain that has brought an that, that the gospel, the, the reality that he is the only way to the Father, that he has assured my place and Molly's place with the Father by his life, death, by his life, death, and, and resurrection, it has brought an assurance to us in this deepest, deepest pain. He's the only way. Troubling hearts, wondering what will happen after death can find assurance in Christ that if you come to him and you trust in him as your Lord and Savior, he will bring you home to the Father for eternity. He is the only way. And second, he is true revelation. He's the way, he's the truth. I am the truth. You wanna know what God's like? You look at Jesus. This has broad implications. You look at the next verse, Thomas will ask another question. Love that guy. He asks, show us the Father And Jesus says, haven't I been with you? He's saying, hey, you want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks about something, heaven, hell, money, marriage, life, death, people, sex, ethics, whatever, you look at Jesus. You look to his words, works, and ways. If you perhaps struggle with a particular sin in here, you see what God says, what he likes, how he leads, and you choose to do the opposite. Where he offers life and we choose sin and death over and over and over, our solution to that is not trying harder, it's looking to Jesus, the true revelation of God, beholding him, falling more in love with him, and eventually becoming more like him as we follow after him. Thomas Chalmers says it like this, the best way to overcome the world, read that as our sin, is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. You overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than it, which is Christ himself. You look at Jesus and you see true revelation of God. You look at Jesus in the moments when you have a weary faith. And you find that he is strengthening you as you stare at and lean into and rely on the person and nature of Christ himself. Where time can lead you to be weary, time can also lead you to be mature and to grow. As you look at Jesus over and over and over and over again, you'll never grow beyond needing and looking to Jesus Christ. Can I tell you one way I've been doing this recently, just personally, what this has looked like for me? There's a lot of examples I could give. But this is just one just reflection of Jesus that has felt so strong on my mind for the last probably three weeks. Um, I've been thinking about the face of Jesus on the cross. If you study the scriptures, the face of Jesus on the cross has two things on it. It has uh, one, it has the blood of Jesus on it, a crown of thorns put on his head, smashed down on his head, thwacked on his head so that blood would run down. But that blood was not the only thing on his face. If you read at the judge, at the, at the mock trial that was going on, men came around and spat on the face of Jesus. So as Jesus is on the cross dying for the sin of the world, the spit of man and the blood of God is on his face. It is the absolute worst that man can bring, and it is the absolute best that God can offer. And for the worst that man can bring, God gives the best that he can offer. It shows the severity.
severity of my sin, my spit, my dishonor, my rebellion against Jesus, looking at him, turning from him, spitting on him with my sin and him saying, I will bleed for you. My sin so severe, his blood so loving, so significant, so powerful and so strong. The severity of my sin and the significance and the weight of the love of God for me while I was still a sinner shown in Christ. You look at Jesus, you see true revelation of God the Father. He's the only way, easing troubled hearts. He's true revelation, strengthening weary faith. And finally, he is everlasting life. He is the way, the truth, and he himself is our everlasting life. Life with him forever. I don't have time, but if you were to start at the beginning of the Bible and work your way through, you would see this motif over and over and over of God saying, I will be with you, you will be with me. I will be with you, you will be with me. I will be with you, you will be with me. This strand weaves its way through scripture. It's the way things were at the beginning, humanity with God, God with humanity. It's God's desire for us now and into eternity. So he sends Jesus to be the only way and true revelation so that we might have everlasting life in him. So that having everlasting life in him, we would have life with God. God now and forever, we would be with him and he would be with us. And this is often what lies at the heart of our desperate questions. Will God abandon me? And the reality of this everlasting life, this assurance that we have in Christ, the true revelation of the love of God that we see in Jesus is that the answer for the Christian is no. You can have everlasting life with God. And while these desperate questions often lead to our deepest growth, they frequently come out of incredibly difficult circumstances. And those difficult circumstances that you and I experience in our lives can obscure what we know to be true. I have everlasting life in God, but it feels dark and it feels obscured and it feels difficult right now. And when that happens, when you experience those difficult circumstances that obscure the way that you're looking at Jesus or looking to heaven or looking to the future for hope, I wanna invite you to do something that is uniquely Christian. I wanna invite you to, and you can write this down, remember the future. Um, I'm gonna close with this. I am, I, um, I I used to live in Pennsylvania. Uh, we helped plant a church at Penn State there. And um, my friend Curry once invited me to go mountain running with him. By the way, if anyone ever invites you to go mountain running with them, don't. Like, just don't do it. Um, my first tell, sorry, my first tell should have been when he picked me up and it was early in the morning and, and I saw him tying his shoes when we got out of the car and I, didn't, I realized I didn't recognize the brand of those shoes. And I was like, what are those? And he said, well, I didn't know what they were. I, mean, I, I didn't know what they were. And he's like, yeah, they've got metal plates in them. And I was like, they've got what? I looked down at my like shoe carnival Nikes and I'm like, I don't think I've got metal plates in my shoes. Like, I, I, don't, I didn't say that out loud. But we run about a mile to the base of the mountain and Curry looks at me when we get to the base as we're running up to it. And he says, do you want to take the long way or the short way? And I said, the short way. And he looked at me and he said, are you sure? And what I should have said is, no, I'm not sure. I don't know anything that's going on. And instead I looked at him and I said, absolutely. That was dumb. Um, so we're running up this mountain and, and eventually Curry just, just leaves me in the dust. And I'm running up and there's like 30 degree pitches and it is like insane. It, there's a, literally an entire like stretch of, um, I don't even know what to call it, like, like trail that is just these like rocks like this big just on top of each other. You're having to jump from rock to rock to rock. I mean, I, every time I catch a bush, I'm catching thorns. I'm literally like 
cut and bleeding on my arm. I, I pull over, pull over, I stop running. I stop running to dry heave twice. And I'm just like, like I am, I'm actually, to be honest with you, I'm angry at this point. Like I'm angry with Curry. I'm, I'm very displeased that he has put me through this and that he made me pretend like I knew what I was doing. And um, no, I'm kidding. And, and, and I, I just remember having this moment where I was like, how do I tell him how angry I am with him without popping off on him on the top of this uh, mountain? And, and I get to the top and eventually I hit the end of the, the trail and, and Curry, uh, I see him standing off and he kind of like waves me over and I jog up to him, trying to look good in like the last like 100 yards, I'm dying. But I like, I like roll up on him and, and he, just, he just points through uh, this opening that he is kind of right in front of. There's these trees that there's this opening from the top of this mountain. He points and he says, look. And, and in between these trees from the top of this mountain, I see just the, the most beautiful uh, portrait picture of the Happy Valley. I can see the stadium. I can see the hills. I can see everything. The sunrise is like coming up over it. I don't have a word for it other than beautiful. Like it was just a beautiful moment, a beautiful picture. And I remember just being quiet. I, I wasn't so angry anymore. I just looked out with him. I felt my body calm down and relax. And we just looked for a few moments and then we ran back down. Um, and I noticed something on the way down. One, it was easier because downhill. Um, but, but two, I realized that as I ran down, it's just my body didn't feel like it hurt as bad. And I wasn't as angry. I wasn't as in pain. I kept thinking, genuinely, this was the thought I had was, I've got to get Molly up here. She has to see what I've just seen here at the top of this mountain. And as I was running down, I just kept thinking about the view from the top of the hill. And I wondered just for a moment, I wondered, that if I knew what was waiting for me at the top of the hill, if it would have made my journey up the hill while I was running it through the pain just a little bit easier. I wondered if it wouldn't have felt quite as difficult if I knew it was waiting for me up there. If the incline, the rocks, the thorns, while real, wouldn't have felt so ultimate. I wonder if I knew it was coming, if remembering the future would have helped me through the pain of the path that I was on. Let me pull that back to us here for a second. More people and places like this need to tell you that you're going to have difficult circumstances in your life. There's a whole lot of people that are gonna tell you that there's a way for you to never suffer ever or never experience pain ever. They're lying to you. You will have difficult experiences in your life. Welcome to Salt Company, okay? You'll have difficult experiences in your life. You will have desperate questions in your life. But I wonder if what might happen if you remember that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the everlasting life. That if because of Christ, there's a way for you to come to the Father, for you to spend eternity with God, for you to know life with God right now. I wonder if you remember the future, if the pain on the path won't feel quite as ultimate and that Jesus will feel the most ultimate for you. Logan, you can come on up. I just want to remind you of the future here for just a, a moment. It's this short passage from, from the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. It's recorded as saying, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I hear this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall be mourning, there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You know, there's a guy that said, where it says the former things have passed away, you can put just about anything that you're struggling with that feels painful in your life right there. The former things have passed away. The anxiety has passed away. The insecurity has passed away. The disquieted realities have passed away. Your imposter syndrome has passed away. Just take every single thing that you have ever struggled with, ever found difficult in the entirety of your life. That is a thing that will pass away. There will be no more of it in heaven. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. This will be the everlasting life that we're invited to it, where he will dwell with us and we will dwell with him. He'll be with us, we'll be with him. Life everlasting starts the day that you become a Christian and that future that you can remember is waiting for you there. I wonder what might happen, Salt Company, if we paused and were able to remember the future. How in your difficult circumstance and the pain of the path of life, if you were to look to Jesus, the only way, true revelation of God and to remember this everlasting life that is yours because of him in the difficult circumstance, in the desperate questions, while real, that those things might not seem so ultimate as you see Jesus as ultimate, as you turn your eyes upon Jesus and you look full in his wonderful face, that the things of this earth may grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Just take a moment just to respond with me here for a second. You could close your eyes and bow your heads if you feel comfortable. No one's going to ask you to do anything. We're not going to tap you. We're not going to ask you to stand or raise your hand. Just want to give you a moment to slow down and consider this text, consider these realities. I want to speak to a couple groups of people here. Um, First, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. The invitation of Jesus to you tonight is found in those words. No one can come to the Father except through me, and anyone can come to the Father through me. Tonight, you can come to Jesus Christ. You can put your trust in him as Lord and Savior, and he will be your way, your truth, and your life. You can have an assurance that you will be with the Father because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. I'm begging you, do not wait come to Jesus tonight. Trust in him as your Lord and as your Savior. For others in the room who do follow Jesus, you have life with God. I wonder if for your troubled heart, you need to remember that he's the only way. That you actually have an opportunity for movement in front of you and you've been saying no, and tonight you actually just need to say yes to Jesus. That you need to let the reality that he is the only way move you, help you take that next step? Do you have a troubled heart and you need to remember the assurance that you have in Jesus? Ask him to help you. Maybe you feel like you have a weary faith. Just take a moment to remember the gospel, to stare at Jesus, to stare at the cross, the empty tomb. Let him strengthen 
perhaps you have a difficult circumstance and a desperate question, maybe you just need to take a little time tonight to remember the future and then tomorrow and then the next day and the next day and the next day. So before we return to worship, I wanna invite you to just take a moment right where you are and pray. However you need to respond, take a minute to do so. No one's rushing you. We will sing. We will sing to Jesus. We will bring our praise to him. We want the nations to be glad and we'd like it to start right here in this room. We will worship him because he is the way. We will worship him because he is the truth. We will worship him because he is the way. So take a moment. 